Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Good morning and welcome to our morning worship service here at West Houston Bible Church. A couple of announcements we need to go over before we begin. First of all, don't forget that uh, next Saturday night, Sunday morning is daylight savings time. That wasn't today, and I guess most people figured that out and they didn't show up early or maybe you were going to be late and you got here on time. I don't know. I can't remember. What's it? Fall forward? Fall back? Spring forward? Okay, so you turn your clocks back one hour. And second, if you are a teacher or substitute or involved with uh, prep school, we're going to have a short meeting following the morning worship service this morning, so be sure to stay for that. Okay, before we get started, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're so grateful that we can be here as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to worship you. The highest form of worship is to study your word, because in the study of your word we learn what you have revealed to us, we learn how you think, we learn your priorities, and it is in the process of the study of your word under the teaching ministry and sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we are brought to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that as we worship you this morning, that all that we say and do will honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing our first hymn, number 277, The Church's One Foundation, number 277.
This morning's scripture reading is Psalm 92. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. With the ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the works of your hands. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this that when the wicked sprouted up like grass, and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forevermore. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies will perish. All who do iniquity will be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil, and my eye has looked exultantly upon my foes. My ears hear of the evildoers who rise up against me. The righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still yield fruit in old age. They shall be full of sap and very green. To declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. We'll continue our service with hymn number four, How Great Thou Art. We'll sing verses one, three, and four, and on this third verse, we'll sing it softly until we get to the refrain, and then we'll sing that in normal voice. We'll try that, okay? Please stand.
Scripture teaches that giving as unto the Lord is also a part of our worship. Not only do we worship the Lord through song, which is one of the first evidences of the filling of the Holy Spirit, as mentioned in Ephesians 5:19 and following, but giving is also a part of that of our spiritual life in terms of expression of gratitude to the Lord. Scripture teaches that it's the responsibility of every believer to give to support the local church as well as missions. But the Scripture says that the amount that we give and how much we give is as determined in proportion to how the Lord has blessed us and in proportion to our own uh, volition, our own decision on how much we want to give in order to express our appreciation to the Lord for all that he has done for us. Giving is based on grace. It's not based on works. It's not based on uh, acquisition of uh, any kind of uh, approval from God, but is clearly an expression of our own spiritual life and our own gratitude for him. Scripture says, As every man purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the offering, let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the many ways in which you bless us, but above all things, we're grateful for our salvation, a salvation that is dependent in no way upon who we are what we do, but it is solely dependent on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. That there he paid the penalty for our sins that we might have a free grace salvation by simply accepting what he did for us. Father, these gifts that we give today are simply an expression of our appreciation and gratitude for all that you have provided for us and done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to take a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study His Word. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ sins, it doesn't cause a breach in his salvation, but it does cause a break in fellowship. Just as when a child disobeys a parent, it causes a break in fellowship with the parent, so sin causes a break in fellowship with God. Restoration comes when we confess our sins. Scripture says if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary to make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus on the study of God's Word this morning, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can gather together this morning to to study your word, that as we stand here and sit here under the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, as he takes your word and and, uh, shines it like a spotlight into our soul, we pray that we might be responsive to that which it teaches us and that which it reveals in our lives and in our thinking, that we might conform our thinking not to the world, but that we might be transformed by the renovation, the renewing of our mind, that we may think your thoughts after you. Father, we pray that as we spend time in your word for the next hour or so, we pray that we might focus our attention on these things, not be distracted by the things to come this afternoon or this week or the problems or challenges of the week before, but that we might take this time to focus on your word, that God the Holy Spirit would refresh us, encourage us, strengthen us, and challenge us with the things we learn today, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Every human being from the time of the creation of Adam has been involved in a cosmic conflict, a spiritual war, what we sometimes call the angelic conflict, but Satan and his uh, demons, the angels that followed him in his rebellion against God has targeted the human race because the human race stands right at the center of this conflict. Now, we have seen in the previous weeks of our study on spiritual warfare and the angelic conflict that this began in the Garden of Eden, and when God had created Adam and the woman, he gave them one specific 
uh, prohibition, and that was that they uh, should not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they did, in that instant, they would certainly die. The ramifications and punishment and consequences for that sin was spelled out in Genesis chapter 3. We spent some time on that in the past few weeks because that represents, that whole event represents Satan's first attack on mankind. There were subsequent uh, direct attacks as well as, well as indirect attacks, but that's the starting point in Genesis 3.15, and as part of what God outlined as the consequences of that sin, he made a prophetic pronouncement directed toward the serpent who was, had been uh, uh, indwelt by Satan and controlled by Satan, that eventually the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So as we have gone through these studies, looking at these various attacks, we've come up to the point where we come to the crushing of the serpent's head. The crushing of the serpent's head takes place at the cross provisionally, but finally and totally when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So we are going to focus on that this morning and see this resolution in human history. Now, first of all, let's just review a little bit about what we've covered. We've seen that in terms of Satan's assaults on the human race, we can divide them into two categories. The first category has to do with direct assaults. And by direct assaults, I mean when Satan or demons are directly attacking, overtly attacking the human race. That's different from uh, demon influence, which is an indirect attack, and Satan using human beings to bring about his uh, desired ends. That all comes under the category of indirect assaults, and we haven't addressed that yet. But when we look at the direct assaults, the first was in Genesis 3. The second occurs in Genesis 6. Genesis 3, and God announced that the seed of the woman would crush the head uh, of the seed of the serpent. And so in Genesis 6, there's the first strong assault against the seed of the woman, the attempt to destroy the purity of the human race when the uh, sons of God came to earth and took his wives, the daughters of men. We spent quite a bit of time studying that. Throughout the Old Testament, there were no other direct assaults as we have seen. There were, uh, and then we come to the period of the incarnation of Christ. In Matthew chapter 4, we're told about the first direct assault on Jesus Christ, on the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it was really addressed to his deity to try to get the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity, who was supposed to live his life as a human being, relying on the same spiritual resources that you and I have, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Satan was trying to get him to rely on his deity to solve the problems of his humanity. He passed those three tests with flying colors. Also during that same time, we see the attack of demon possession, there, as I pointed out in the past, there are no examples, there's no mention of demon possession in the Old Testament. Suddenly this comes up in the period of the Incarnation, and the direct assaults on the Lord Jesus Christ culminate at the cross. That will be our focus this morning. Following that period, we are living in the present church age. 
where we do not have these kinds of direct assaults, at least they're not emphasized at all in the epistles, and then that period will be followed by the tribulation period, during which time there are three demonic assaults, three demon armies uh, are released during the time of the tribulation. Then the Lord Jesus Christ returns, establishes his kingdom, and at the end of the millennial kingdom, the final assault on humanity, the Gog and Magog revolt led by Satan when he is released from his imprisonment during his thousand-year imprisonment during the millennial kingdom. Okay, that gives us our overview to understand that this conflict that I'm talking about covers the scope of human history. And to understand this gives us an understanding, a realization of how each one of us fits within this angelic conflict. It answers so many questions that we have related to why has God done things the way they are? Why is our spiritual life so important? What exactly is our role after salvation? What are we supposed to do? Is, is, is just, are we here just to be saved? Or is there something more significant that we do once we're saved? And the answer to that question is yes, indeed. For, and once we're saved, we enter into the uh, side of the Lord, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of righteousness, and we are here to uh, carry out his various mandates related to evangelism, that our lives, and, and related to the spiritual life as well, that our lives may become a trophy of his grace and evidence against the claims of Satan in the angelic conflict. Let's go back to the start. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, a verse we've already looked at in some detail, but this morning I want to look at some aspects of this that I haven't uh, brought out in the past so that we can see how this is fulfilled. Genesis 3.15 is where God addresses the serpent, and in his address of the serpent, he is going to uh, make a prophecy related to the serpent's eventual judgment because of his involvement in the temptation and fall of man. So God addresses the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now there's a couple of things that we need to point out about this verse that I haven't pointed out before, one of which is that this verse is rather general. It's rather general, and in one sense, it has a certain level of ambiguity to it. Now, when I mean that, I don't mean that it is not clear. I simply mean that it is a very broad statement, and as we go through the process of of revelation, the progress of revelation, then there are more and more prophecies that add specificity to this, and in order to help us understand how it will be fulfilled in history. But the ambiguity here relates to the vocabulary and allows the passage to be fulfilled in a couple of different directions. So let's just look at the vocabulary here because it's very uh, illuminating. The first word I want to emphasize is the word enmity. Enmity is the Hebrew noun eva which means hostility, animosity, acrimony, 
uh, malice that leads to violence between mortal enemies. It is often used to describe the violence, the hatred, the animus between two opposing armies as they come together to fight. So this word implies tremendous hostility, anger, violence that is going to occur between the serpent and the woman. This isn't just a mention, uh, indication that women are going to be afraid of snakes. This, that's not what this is about. This has longer-range uh, implications. And they're brought out in the development in the next phrase, and between your seed and her seed. Now, this is a very unusual term, as I've pointed out in the past, and it has some implications that I haven't uh, developed uh, previously. The Hebrew word here for seed is zerah, and it refers to sowing. Sometimes it refers to the sowing of literal seed. It refers to descendants in a broad sense. So when you talk in some passages about the seed of Abraham, it's talking in a broader sense of his descendants. That's because the, when the word is used in that context, it is what we call a collective noun. A collective noun is a noun like crowd or multitude, or you might even use the word nation in such a way where you're using a singular noun, but it involves a, a tremendous number of people. So it, though it is singular grammatically, it refers to a large number of people. The word seed can refer to both a collective group such as the descendants of someone, the descendants of Eve, or the descendants of Abraham later on, or the descendants of David, but it also can be a singular noun that refers to a specific individual. A singular noun that refers to a specific individual. So we ask the question, what in Genesis 3.15 gives us an indication that this is referring to, uh, this is used as either a collective noun or an individual noun? Is there anything there? I'm going to get you to think a little bit this morning. Do you see anything in the context that tells you which it is? No, you don't. Hence the ambiguity that I'm talking about. Because as you go through Scripture, you see that this word actually is applied in both directions. That's why it's structured the way it's structured. So <clears throat> let's make some observations. First of all, usually the term is related to the, not to the woman's procreative ability, but to the male's procreative ability. You talk about a seed, and it's translated this way in the, in the Septuagint, translates it by the Greek word sperma. So as soon as you talk about the seed of the woman, that ought to jar you just a little bit in terms of thinking, well, that's not really normal, so what, what is being emphasized here? And so there is an, uh, at least an implication related to the virgin birth that did not involve a human uh, male father. Second, because the term is a collective noun, it can refer to either the human race as a whole or a specific individual. And it is going to be used in both ways. The seed of the woman, in one sense, involves all of humanity because we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. But in another sense, 
In a theological sense, it is taken in subsequent writers, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, to refer to a specific individual who is the Messiah and whom we know as Jesus Christ, the incarnate second person of the Trinity. The term seed, as it is used in relationship to both the serpent and the woman, has a different nuance, different significance. Uh, This is the third observation. The seed of the serpent is not a term that refers to his physical, biological descendants, because Satan has no literal, physical, biological descendants. In the term, in the way the term is used, the seed of the serpent, it simply refers to his his followers, those who are under his uh, leadership, under his authority. And we see this in John eight forty four, where Jesus addressed the Pharisees and said, "You are of your father, the devil." So we see here that this includes moral religious leaders. It includes any human being who is, has not been regenerated and has not entered into the family of God. Therefore, every human being is born into the family and followership of Satan. You didn't know that, that before you were saved, you were of your father, the devil. You thought you were a pretty nice, moral, maybe even religious person. But the Pharisees were very nice, moral, religious people. We tend to look at them through the interpretive grid of the New Testament, and we see their sanctimoniousness, we see their self-righteousness as that is exposed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you were a Jew living at that time, these were the really good guys. They were the ones who were devoted to Torah. They were the ones who were always at synagogue. They were the uh, moral majority of their generation. They were extremely righteous in their overt conduct. And you didn't always see the self-righteous arrogance of their mental attitude sins that was lurking in the background. But Jesus exposes that, so we tend to see them through that lens where he identifies them as of their father, the devil. Now, as we go through uh, further analysis of uh, Genesis 3.15, one thing that, that I would bring out is that in the, that in the course of interpretation, under, understanding this verse, there has always been this sort of this discussion, this debate between whether this is talking about a collective group or whether it's talking about an individual. The Septuagint, which was the translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into uh, Koine Greek about uh, the second century B.C. It took a, uh, quite a while for it to take place, but between about 250 B.C. to about 175 B.C., you have the translation of the Septuagint. And the Jewish rabbis that translated uh, the word for seed, the word zera, uh, translated it with the word sperma. Now, the interesting thing is the Greek word sperma is a neuter noun. And so when we look at this passage, and talks about between your seed and her seed, and then we come to the next phrase, rather than using the neuter pronoun in the Greek it, which would agree in gender with its antecedent noun, which is grammatically correct, the uh, 
the translators of the Septuagint translated it with a masculine pronoun because they understood that this referred to a specific individual. So they translated it with the Greek uh, pronoun indicating the a, a he. So that shows us that the translators of the Septuagint in at least 200 B.C. understood this to have an individual uh, referent and not just a, uh, a collective referent. However, this, during the same period of time and later on, a number of rabbis, targums, other Jewish writings that we have interpreted this as a collective. And, that's, and the reason you have the same thing happen in the early church, you have some that took it as an individual, some that took it as, as collective, and it's because it has this level of ambiguity at the, at the beginning. So I think a fourth observation that, that I made here, I think this is point four, maybe it's point five. Uh, the verse is a fairly general statement, and it picks up refinements and specificity as God gives more revelation. Initially, within the context of Genesis, we see that the woman interprets this as applying to Cain. But we have a problem with Cain and his sinfulness, and again, there's an enmity between Cain and Abel, and Cain murders Abel. And so we begin to see the outworking of this problem and this anim animosity between the followers of Satan and the those who are devoted to God at, from Genesis chapter 4 on. The word seed takes on a very important significance in the book of Genesis. This is the next point, the fifth point. It occurs uh, 59 times in the book of Genesis. And of those 59 occurrences, 47 of them occur from between Genesis 12 and Genesis 50, following and including and following the Abrahamic covenant where God made that initial promise to Abraham that through his seed all the world would be blessed and that God would bless him with his seed. And that related in one sense to Isaac. In another sense, it related to his descendants. And in another sense, it is applied specifically to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in Genesis 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants. However, the word in the Hebrew is Zerah again, and it's in a singular noun. The English translations almost always translated as a plural. But the Hebrew is a singular. To your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who uh, appeared to him. This is repeated in Genesis chapter 15, 18 in the giving of the Abrahamic covenant uh, proper. Now, what's interesting is in the context of Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, the interpretation of that, remember there's one interpretation but numerous applications, the interpretation of that has to do with the uh, biological descendants of Abraham through Isaac. But in Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul comes along and makes a theological application of that principle in Genesis 15.18. And he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. 
And he then he points out, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. Now, I want you to notice something, because every now and then people uh, wonder why it is I take time at, to point out and go into the original languages and to point out the nuances of the original Greek and Hebrew. And it is because this is what the writers of Scripture did. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ did, is that they made application on the basis of even grammar. Even the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture extends even to the grammar so that you have different places where uh, different authors derive application and theological principles from the basis of grammar. And so Paul says if you carefully analyze the verse... You've got a singular noun, not a plural noun, and that's because it has an ultimate reference to the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the one through whom all the covenants will ultimately be fulfilled. So as we look back in this process and progress of revelation in Genesis, it starts with this announcement that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the serpent refers to the <clears throat> followers of the serpent. There would be this animosity, this war between the followers of Satan and the seed of the woman, but that ultimately the one who brings defeat to the seed of the serpent is going to be this individual the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. And that came about at the first advent. Now, how did that come about? How do we see Satan directly involved in crushing uh, the heel of the seed of the woman? See, the, dip, the, the same verb is used in both constructions indicating some sort of act of violence to crush to smite, but the crushing of the heel, the heel is not a very significant part of the body, and so crushing the heel is a uh, hurtful but not fatal wound, whereas the crushing of the head is a fatal wound. So the seed of the serpent is going to wound the seed of the woman, but not fatally, but the seed of the woman will fatally wound and destroy the seed of the serpent. That's the, that's the distinction there. So turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is very interesting as to how the Apostle John sets this particular aspect up and, and as he explains and describes what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in John chapter 13. John 13, by the way, is one of the most important chapters in the Bible for a number of reasons, and everything flows out of what occurs and what is taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, both by act and by word, as he celebrates the Last Supper, his final Passover meal with his disciples. And I want you to just pay attention to a couple of things. Too often when you sit down, you read your Bible, I know what it's like. You're distracted by other things. You have part of your mind on what you're reading, part of your mind somewhere else. And I'm hoping to show by some of the things I point out today that you just need to stop and, and focus on what you're reading and think about what the Scripture is saying. Verse, verses 1 through 4 
set up the action. They describe the setting of what takes place in the, at the Last Supper. Now, beginning in verse 5, down through verse 17, Jesus teaches a very important doctrinal principle through his actions. And we have studied this in the past. We see where Jesus is going to get up. He is going to wrap a towel around his waist. He's going to take a basin of water. He's going to wash the feet of the disciples. Many people stop there and say, oh, isn't this a beautiful illustration of being a servant? Well, it's that, but it's more than that because Jesus is using this to teach the importance of ongoing cleansing from sin. It is the vocabulary he uses comes right out of the Old Testament, right out of the vocabulary related to the initial uh, cleansing of the high priest when he enters into office, which is comparable to when the believer becomes uh, is first saved and is cleansed from head to toe. And ongoing cleansing, which involves simply wash, for the priest in the Old Testament, washing your hands, washing your feet, and this pictures for us the ongoing necessity of confessing our sins for ongoing cleansing for those sins we commit after salvation. But in the midst of this, there's another layer of action that's going on sort of unseen and undetected by the disciples. They're all confused, like Peter is, about why, why is the Lord washing my feet? I'm not real comfortable with that. I ought to be washing his feet, of course, uh, Peter blurts that out and gets uh, sort of slapped down by the Lord in terms of uh, you need to just shut up and listen and learn the lesson and quit trying to uh, run your own agenda, Peter. But So they completely miss this other theme that John very carefully brings to our attention in verse 2. Let's read verse 1 to get the context. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, John is an excellent writer, and what he has done in this first verse is he has let us know that the key element, the major doctrine that's being communicated here has to do with love. And if we read all the way down through the through the passage, when we come to the end, Jesus gives them a new commandment in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And forgiveness from God is a manifestation of his love for us, and so we should also manifest that same love for others in forgiving them. That's part of the lesson that is here. But love is not restricted to simply forgiveness and willingness to forgive others. There's another element here that has to do with God's love, and it is related to an exclusionary thing that takes place related to one of the disciples. So often people who are not operating on a biblical framework think that love is inclusive. What we see here is part of God's love, part of Christ's love, is exclusive. He is going to exclude Judas Iscariot. And that comes in about midway through the chapter. But at the very beginning of this chapter, John introduces it. Why doesn't he just go straight to the foot washing? Have you ever thought about that? Why is it that when you come to verse 
verses 2 through 4, which form one sentence in the original Greek, you don't get the subject of the sentence until verse 3, which is Jesus, and you don't get the verb that goes with that until verse 4. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments. That's the thought in verses 2 through 4, that Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his garments. But verse 2 is the setup. And you look at it, and grammatically it is a dependent clause that simply describes for us some other element that is going on behind the scenes. It's a big clue. It's like Agatha Christie telling you who done it up in the first chapter, so you can follow the the uh, plot line from there on. And so in verse two we read, "And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him." You see, before he even starts getting into the, the, the real muscle of the passage, which is Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, he wants us to know something else is happening behind the scenes. Pay attention to this. Supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, this is an example of demon influence. It's an example of demon influence because what happens is the devil is influencing the thinking of Judas. The word heart is often used to refer to the innermost part of man and specifically the thinking that is going on in the soul. And we see a parallel passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 3. This has to do with Ananias and Sapphira. If you're not familiar with them, they were two believers in the early church, and they were real impressed by the fact that one of the leaders in the church, Barnabas, sold some land and uh, made a tremendous profit on the land and gave all of the money to the church. And they were so impressed by that and the way other people were impressed by Barnabas giving that they decided that they would sell some land and tell everybody that they gave all the money to the church, but they were going to hold back some of their profit because they wanted to have a little extra money. And so they were lying against the Holy Spirit. And this is in the early days of the church. And so something very unusual happened, and that is that they instantly died because they lied to the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not an ongoing thing. It only, that kind of thing only happened in the earliest days of the church in order to protect it from, uh, from this kind of activity, from being sort of hijacked by carnal Christians. In its infancy, God was protect, protecting this newborn baby church. And so Peter confronts them with their lie and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? It's not Satan who's in their heart, but Satan filled their heart with a desire. So it's that temptation of demon influence that's going on there. In this case, both cases, satanic influence on the individuals. Now, when we go back and we look at verse 2, this isn't talking about demon possession here. It's simply talking about demon influence. But demon influence, once we follow it, it can often set up a person to be a target for demon possession. 
And that's what happens here. So let's just skip down as we go through the passage and point out a couple of uh, things that we should understand to properly interpret the events. Look down at verse 10. In verse 10... Uh, Peter has already uh, resisted the Lord and said, Lord, don't, uh, uh, don't wash me. And the Lord uh, rebuked him in verse uh, 9 and uh, verse 8 and said, uh, if I don't wash you, you don't have any role. That should not be part. We tend to think, think the word part means to play a role. Excuse me, I did say role, didn't I? Not to play a role in something. But this is a technical word in the Greek uh, meros, and it means a the the designated inheritance or share of something. So it should be understood that Jesus says to him, "If you don't let me wash you, that is, if you don't let me continue to cleanse you from your sin, then you won't have any long-term inheritance or share in the kingdom." And so Peter responds instantly to the to the rebuke, and and in verse uh, nine he says, "Lord, not my feet only, but wash." my hands and my head, give me a bath. And the Lord responded to that by saying, he who is bathed only, let me put the verse up here so you can look at it, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. The word for bathe indicates a complete bath, head to toe. Washing his feet is a different word, nipto, which indicates only the washing of a part of the body. And Jesus says, he who is bathed, and that's a reference to positional cleansing that occurs at salvation. So at salvation, you are forgiven of all your sins positionally, positionally cleansed, but yet experientially you continue to sin. And when you continue to sin, there has to be ongoing uh, cleansing, which is pictured in the act of the high priest. Every time he'd come into the presence of God, he'd have to wash his hands and wash his feet. So Jesus says, he who is bathed, that is, positionally cleansed, saved, needs only to wash his feet. That needs you only have to go through uh, ongoing cleansing uh, to, because he's completely clean. And he says, you all, plural you, y'all, y'all are clean, but not all of you. See, if he was from East Texas, he'd say, y'all are clean, but not all, all of y'all. See, there was one there who wasn't saved. There was one there who wasn't cleansed. That's the point that he's making. Verse 11, he says, For he knew, this is John telling us what's going on behind the scenes, he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, You are not all clean. In other words, one of them, he, Jesus in his omniscience knew was going to betray him. And so he says that not all of you are cleansed because one of them wasn't saved. One of them was not positionally cleansed. Now, this is the Greek word here for cleansing is katharos, which often refers to positional cleansing, but it's also used in its verb form in 1 John 1, 9 to refer to ongoing uh, experiential cleansing. If we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, uh, it's used both ways, positional which is a complete judicial cleansing because of our position in Christ that occurs at salvation. And so you never have to worry about post-salvation sins and losing your salvation. The only concern is that when you do sin, you have to be cleansed, restored to fellowship, so you can continue, and that's simply confessing your sin. Well, as we go on through the narrative, I'm not going to look at the other aspects, we come to verse 27, 
And Jesus has already indicated to Peter, it's kind of a private conversation there, that the one he gives the bread to is going to be the one to betray him. And then John writes in verse 27, Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, referring to Judas Iscariot. Jesus, the, uh, Satan entered him, and then Jesus said to him, and this is just, as they're sitting around this long table, Jesus is, is right there next to, next to Judas, and it's just a private statement. It's not heard by everybody there. He just says, what you're going to do, go and do quietly. Now, the key phrase here is the phrase that Satan entered him, and this is the Greek verb ace erkamai, and we've seen that before, haven't we? This is the same word we've looked at the last two weeks that is used in a technical sense in all of the demon possession narratives to indicate how a demon goes into somebody, and then when they leave their ex-erkamai, they go out of somebody. So in demon possession narratives, ace-erkamai indicates demon possession. And so in this verse, this word specifically indicates satanic possession. He moves it from demon influence or Satan influence in verse 2 to direct satanic uh, possession in verse 27. And so Satan, when uh, Judas is the seed of the serpent, and he is possessed by Satan, who now leads him, guides him to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, so which will lead to his being crushed on the cross, the crushing of the heel of the seed of the woman. And so this is what takes place on the cross. First Peter 3.18 describes it this way, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. At the cross... The seed of the woman was crushed, but only the heel. It is a temporary wounding because after three days and three nights in the tomb, he is resurrected. And guess what happens then? 1 Peter 3.19 says that he went and he preached, he made a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, the spirits in prison are those Old Testament Sons of God, referenced in Genesis 6, those demons who had, uh, had taken human wives back in Genesis 6 to, to defile the human race. Jesus goes during those three days and three nights, he announces his victory on the cross that they are defeated. Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled positionally. Now, Satan is still operational on the planet. We know that one one thing further here is in verse 20 we read that these who he preached to were those who were formerly disobedient, disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. So First uh, Peter 3, 18 through 20 tells us who those spirits are that he proclaimed to. Those of you who grew up in a in a church that recited the creeds, when you recited the the uh, Nicene Creed and it's, or the Apostles' Creed and said that Jesus uh, rose from the grave and descended into hell. Hell is Hades. Hades, one of the compartments of Hades was where these demons were imprisoned. And that's what that means. I used to have people say, Jesus didn't go to hell. 
Well, yeah, you're right. He didn't, but he did descend into Hades. It is a correct statement. And he went there in order to make victorious proclamation that the victory was won on the cross. Genesis 3.15 was, was complete. But having failed to attack the seed singular and to destroy the seed singular, Satan is going to adopt a new strategy when it comes to the church age and the tribulation. Remember what happened, what his strategy was from the fall to the cross was to destroy the seed singular and prevent the seed of the woman from having victory. He failed. So now what he has to do is he has to attack another seed, the seed of Abraham. He is going to try to destroy the Jews before God can fulfill his promises to them. See, he has been strategically defeated at the cross, but he has one last hope. If he can prove that God really can't run the universe and God can't uh, fulfill his plans and his promises, then the only hope he has left is to prove that God can't be God either. And the only way he can do that is to try to keep God from being able to fulfill any of his promises. And so he begins to attack the Jews. That's why anti-Semitism is one of the devil's greatest tools in history and why Christians need to be very careful not to succumb to that. This is why I believe that the greatest religious uh, invention of Satan in the modern era is Islam. Because Islam is virulently anti-Semitic to its very core. And this is at the core of a lot that is going on today. Is At the very center of it is their uh, deep-seated animus, their hatred, their bitterness. And no matter what you say, they want to get Israel out of the land. And this is going to be... Uh, Satan's strategy in the church age to try to destroy the Jews, and it's going to go into high gear, warp speed, when he gets into the tribulation uh, period. And there are going to be three major demonic attacks on the human race when we get into the tribulation. And we'll cover these in detail when we get there, but now I just want to summarize them. The first occurs in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. This occurs as the fifth trumpet judgment. So that puts it sometime after the midpoint of the tribulation. It's probably in the last uh, two and a half to three years at the beginning of that period of time. And at this point, there is going to be the, the release of the first demon army that has been held behind or near the river Euphrates. We cover this in Revelation Uh, Revelation chapter 9, so you can turn there to just pick up some of the context. Remember, studying the Bible is always a context sport. (laughs) Revelation chapter 9, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and to him was given, the star represents an angel, To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit. Smoke arose 
Out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace, the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke from the pit, and out of the smoke locusts came up on the earth, and to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, this is a demonic army. Hal Lindsey missed it. He said this was the king of the east, and these, you know, so everybody's been watching China and see if they can feel the 200 million man army. This is a demonic army. This isn't uh, the Chinese. This isn't uh, this isn't Eastern Muslims. This is uh, these are demonic. Uh, they were given a command not to harm the grass or the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. Just they could only attack unbelievers, and they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. The pain will be so unbearable that people will try to commit suicide and won't be able to do it just to end the pain. And I believe that one of the things that happens, at least by the mid-trib period, is that modern technology is destroyed. Because when you look at all the uh, geological and astrological events that occur in the initial seal judgments, it will virtually wipe out the entire power grid and all computer. We're becoming so computer dependent now that once the power grid goes down, everybody's into the Stone Age. And so people are not going to have a lot of uh, ways to uh, kill themselves. They're not going to have access to a lot of pharmaceuticals, painkillers, things like that, because all that technology is gone. We're back in the Stone Age. So we're told in verse 7, the shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. And their heads were crowns of something like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men. Hal Lindsey said these were Huey helicopters or something like it. And he was being very imaginative, almost rabbinical in his approach there. These are demons. They had his king over them, verse 11. They had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is in the Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. They are clearly demons. That's the first uh, demon army released from the abyss. Then in verse 13, we're told that a second demon army is released. This is the sixth trumpet judgment. Now remember, the seventh trumpet judgment contains the seven bold judgments. The seven bold judgments are the last series that occur probably within the last uh, six months or so of the tribulation period. So at this point, we're very close to the end. We're within the last year or so of the tribulation. And this is the release of this 200 million man army released from the Euphrates. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Apparently these four angels are the four commanders or something like it of this 200 million man army that is being released. And they are going to kill a third of mankind. A quarter of mankind was killed in the seal judgments. A third of mankind, and this basically means that half of the human race that's alive at the beginning of the tribulation is killed by this point. And so they are released, and they do it through, verse 18 describes various plagues, uh, fire, smoke, various other things that they use in order to bring this about. And so there is this uh, attack. Now look at the result of this in verse 20. 
you would think that a few people would respond to the gospel seeing all of these horrors. A lot of people think that if they just saw, people just saw miracles, just saw evidence of God, they would, they would be saved. But negative volition seeks to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It doesn't matter how great the evidence, how magnificent the miracles, they still rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And the same thing happens in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship what? Demons. So you're going to have this weird thing going on in the tribulation period where demons and angels are going to be visible. And it's going to culminate in this massive military campaign that almost sounds to us like science fiction. That's because a lot of fantasy and science fiction writers got their inspiration initially from this. So they're still going to worship demons and idols of gold, and they are not going to repent of their murders or sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Then we come to the third and final point, the third assault army, the attack of Satan and his remaining demons from heaven. This is covered in Revelation chapter 12. Now let me set this up for you and look at the first seven verses, or the first six verses of Revelation 12. In these verses, there is a reference back to the first defeat of Satan, the strategic defeat of Satan on the cross. In verse 1 we read, A great sign appeared in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of stars. This use of sun, moon, and stars refers to Israel and goes back to the imagery in Genesis 37.9. So it's a picture of Israel is, is pregnant and going to give birth. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. That's, uh, that's Satan. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. That is, indicates that a third of, the, uh, of all the angels followed him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as he was born. That's uh, Satan's attempt to destroy the uh, Messiah to destroy Jesus when he was born. Verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations. That's our interpretive key. The idea of ruling all nations with a rod, rod of iron comes right out of Psalm 2, the first uh, uh, messianic psalm in the Psalms. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. That's the ascension of Christ. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by her. There's a big time gap between verse 5 and verse 6. And when the woman flees into the wilderness, that's the application of Jesus' command in Matthew 24, that when you see these signs taking place, the abomination of desolation, flee to the mountains. Now, I'm covering a lot of this in a summary fashion, but we're going to cover all these details as we go through through the tribulation, but it's, it helps you get that overview. And then war breaks out in heaven. This is approximately halfway through the tribulation when we get to verse 7. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought. That's that war. That's that enmity aspect, this, this divine war and rebellion among the angels. And they, that is, the dragon and his angels, did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old that connects the serpent in Genesis 3, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast with him. So as the demons are cast to the earth, 
They are visible and walking around. Later on, Revelation 18, we're told that Babylon is an inhabitation of demons. So the great capital city of Babylon for the Antichrist kingdom becomes a, a, um, an inha- a, a dwelling place for demons. And then we come to the final battle, which is in Revelation chapter 19. This is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth with the church at his side as his victorious army to destroy and finally crush the seed of the serpent. Verse 11 of chapter 19. John says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The reason his robe is dipped with blood is because he has just come from a massacre down in Basra when the Jews in the wilderness just called him. He comes down, wipes out the enemies, and leads a victorious army with the tribe of Judah at the forefront coming up through the Negev, up through the south of Israel to Jerusalem and has slaughtered his enemies in a, in a bloodbath. So his robe is dipped in blood. His name is called the Word of God. The armies in heaven clothed in white linen, that's us, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That's that same imagery of the child who will rule with the rod of iron that comes out of the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2. And then we see what happens in the victory. Just skip down to verse 20. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. The beast is the Antichrist who is, like Judas, indwelt and empowered by Satan. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ has his victory over the kings of the earth, he is going to cast the Antichrist and false prophet directly into the lake of fire. Uh, they would go directly there without benefit of dying first. And then we're told the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from his mouth. We're not killing them. He is the one who kills the armies of the kings of the earth. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Following this, verse 2 of the next chapter, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is the crushing of Satan. And then at the end of chapter 20, we learn that Satan is allowed to be released from prison. In verse 7, he goes out to deceive the nations and from the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. And as he approaches the camp of the saints in verse 9, we're told a fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever. That's when Satan is, the seed of the serpent is, is crushed and it all ends. Now, the interesting thing is Satan can read this just as well as you and I, but he is trying desperately to stop it. 
And the way he thinks he can stop it is by destroying the seed collectively of Abraham. Because if he can destroy the seed of Abraham, then he can prevent God from fulfilling those Old Testament promises and he will keep God from being God. So in this panorama that we've covered, we have seen the outworking of that prophecy of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And this is how it will work out despite all of these satanic attacks and assaults in history. Jesus Christ is the one who will be victorious and will establish his kingdom. Satan and will be defeated. Evil will be judged. This present heavens and earth will be destroyed and a new heavens and earth created because this earth, this universe has been tainted and scarred by sin and then we will enter into heaven. But that only applies if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith alone in Christ alone. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things and understand uh, what is going to take place in the future. We see how we are engaged in a battle. We are very much a target as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ within this conflict. But if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be a victim of this conflict, and your judgment is to join your father, the devil, in the lake of fire. But there is hope as long as you are alive that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life and you will have an eternal destiny that will not be marked by this judgment. Right now, right where you sit, you have the opportunity to trust in Christ as your Savior. All you have to do is recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and that you are trusting in him and him alone for your salvation that everything is dependent on who he is and what he did, and it's not dependent on anything you have done in order to gain salvation. Salvation is a free gift of God based on one condition, and that is to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The instant that you trust in Christ as your Savior, God the Father imputes to you Christ's righteousness, declares you justified, regenerates you, gives you eternal life, which can never be taken from you. This is your opportunity to secure a certain salvation that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.